is Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On October 4, 2019, the Gray Center co-hosted its second annual Administrative Law Symposium with the George Mason Law Review. This year, the theme of the symposium was the administration of democracy, that is, ways in which administrative agencies are involved in our country's democratic processes. And the symposium concluded with a panel discussion on the Internal Revenue Service and the debates surrounding Congress's efforts to obtain copies of the President's tax returns. For the symposium, we had a new paper by Professor Andy Grewal on the President's tax returns. And at the conference, this paper was discussed by Michael Stern, an expert on congressional power, Kate Shaw, a professor of law focused on election law and the law of democracy, and Elizabeth Wydra, the president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. I had the pleasure of moderating this discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. So our last topic for the day is a very sleepy, technocratic, mundane uh, regulatory topic. The title of the panel is The IRS, Congress, and the President's Tax Returns. Uh, as with all these panels today, they center around a paper that's been written for the George Mason Law Review's Administrative Law Symposium. In the case of this panel, the last paper of the day is authored by Andy Graywall, uh, who has written a paper titled The President's Tax Returns. Andy is the Joseph F. Rosenfeld Scholar and Professor of Law at the University of Iowa. His scholarly interests relate to tax law, administrative law, statutory interpretation, and constitutional law. He really is one of the nation's leading experts on that intersection of administrative law and tax law. Uh, he testifies before Congress, uh, writes widely, both in legal, um, in legal journals and in popular media, uh, and Twitter. <laughs> um, and uh, he often writes for the Yale Journal on Regulation, which, as many of you know, is, is one of the key places to go for analysis on administrative law and, and regulatory topics. So, Andy, the floor is yours. As you guys know, there's an ongoing controversy over the president's tax returns. Uh, the requests are coming from different sources, uh, local DA, uh, congressional subpoenas, and so on. Uh, what I'm focused on today relates to the Ways and Means Committee's request directed to the Treasury and IRS for President Trump's tax returns. Uh, initially started with an informal request, uh, a particular statute was invoked, it was followed by a subpoena, and now there's a lawsuit. Uh, let me tell you first a little bit about the history of the statutes uh, under which the uh, request was made to give you a, a feel for the context. Under the tax code, there's a provision that says that uh, on the re request of any congressional, any tax congressional committee, the IRS shall furnish uh, any requested returns to that committee. Uh, and the statute is written without qualification. It says shall furnish. There's no specific language in the statute saying for this reason or that reason. It's just a flat, broad statute that purportedly um, grants carpet um, blank authority to the three committees to uh, request returns. Uh, my paper argues at some length that notwithstanding the flat language of the statute, that any request must nonetheless be supported by a legitimate legislative purpose. Uh, before I get to that point, though, um, I think it's helpful to understand the context in which the statute was enacted. 
in the 20s, there was quite a few fights between Congress and the executive branch with respect to tax returns. Uh, Senator Cousins hated um, Treasury Secretary Mellon, accused him of being a tax cheat, wanted his returns, he refused. Eventually he did and was cleared of wrongdoing, I suppose. Uh, the specific controversy that gave rise to this statue related to the so-called Teapot Dome scandal. Uh, apparently, some rich oil barons were bribing cabinet members and so on for favorable oil leases. And as part of a congressional investigation, uh, the committee members or the subcommittee members wanted tax returns related to implicated persons and entities, corporations or owners, uh, some of the most famous oil, oil men of the day. And the executive branch refused. There was no statute at this point. Congress had flirted with uh, giving itself the st statutory rights to tax returns earlier, but there was none at this point. And the president said, I don't have the authority to pick out particular uh, taxpayers' tax returns for you. So I'm not gonna give you these tax returns. This is not proper. It goes on and on. Eventually they reach a compromise. That is, the committee would be able to come over to the, to the Treasury Department and look at the tax returns, but they wouldn't actually be able to access them or, or take them home, I suppose, or take them into Congress. In light of that, in light of that controversy, the statute was enacted. Uh, Congress apparently decided that we do not want to deal with you know, coming hat in hand to the President or the Secretary of Treasury and requesting tax returns. So now the existing statute, as I mentioned, contemplates that the committee uh, sorry, the IRS shall furnish to any of the three tax writing committees uh, returns on request. And it is under that authority that the Ways and Means Committee um, has acted. Now, all that being said, uh, the, we'll talk quite a bit about it on our panel, but I believe that notwithstanding the unqualified language of the statute, that any request for information directed towards the executive branch must be supported by a legitimate legislative purpose. Well, why is that? One, if you look at the Constitution, there's no sentence that says Congress has the power to subpoena or collect information or to oversee the executive branch. Rather, it's traditionally understood that these sorts of requests flow from the legislative power. That is, if Congress wants to pass legislation and needs information and must have some authority to request that information. There's other sources of power. If you're running an impeachment trial, for example, that could be the source of an information request. But just generally speaking, uh, Congress needs information to legislate. And when it does not have a legitimate legislative purpose, the Supreme Court has um, limited Congress's authority. In a famous case from the late 1800s, there was a pending case in, in the district courts related to uh, some investors who apparently defrauded the United States Congress started acting in parallel fashion and uh, subpoena detained a particular person and that person uh, sought judicial relief. And the court actually held that the investigation itself was improper. That is investigating wrongdoing in this particular circumstance was a matter for the executive and the judicial branch. They were not pursuing a legitimate legislative purpose. That holding can be contrasted with an, a later case also arising out of the Teapot Dome scandal, uh, Congress was concerned that the Attorney General had not prosecuted people that he should have, and they sought materials from the uh, Attorney General's brother. And once again, the person there declined to refuse, but this time he lost. And the Supreme Court made an important distinction. They said that here, 
they, Congress was not trying to try the attorney general. They were not investigating him personally. Instead, they create the Department of Justice, and this was part of monitoring the activities of the Department of Justice. Therefore, they had a proper legislative purpose. So from that, you know, there's various cases and so on, we can see that how a particular congressional request for information potentially can intrude on the executive branch or the ju judicial branch. Uh, that's where the phrase legitimate legislative purpose comes from. We wanna tie it to some legislation. And that is why when the Ways and Means has pursued President Trump's tax returns, they have not said, we want to double check your liability. They have not said, we wanna make sure you're paying the right amount of taxes. They have phrased it such that we want to understand how the IRS audits presidents. It's phrased, framed as an investigation of the IRS as opposed to an investigation of Donald Trump. Uh, probably over our panel, we can talk about uh, whether that request is valid. We probably have to debate whether it's pretextual and, and not, or not. But that is the overall arch of this debate. We have a statute that's clear, clear on its face. Uh, we have these background principles, which we may debate. And the question that's being litigated is, is that standard satisfied with respect to President Trump? Or even potentially, if you disagree that the Constitution um, applies here, that or phrased differently, if you believe that the statute is enough, that is, if it's valid, it uh, by itself establishes the committee's right to re tax returns, that would also uh, be another way to address the controversy. With that, I will turn it over to Kate. Thank you very much. Thanks. Our first commenter is Michael Stern. He's the director of Point of Order, a leading resource on congressional legal issues. He specializes in issues affecting Congress and the legislative process, including ethics, elections, investigations, lobbying, and reform. He served as senior, senior counsel to the United States House of Representatives from 1996 to 2004, and later served on the, um, uh, as deputy staff director for investigations for the Senate's Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs. Michael? Thank you very much. Well, thank you, uh, Adam, for uh, the invitation to participate in this panel, and uh, thank you all for, for being here. Um, I actually uh, know the, my co-panelists mostly from Twitter, so uh, I was thinking of doing, uh, doing all my uh, response in emojis. I brought a couple that I thought we could uh, <laughs> to, uh, you know, if it gets boring. <laughs> But I guess I'll try the more traditional method. Um, I, I have uh, basically three points that I want to make in response to um, Andy's uh, thesis. Uh, I'll probably concentrate on the, on the first two, um, but let me just go through them quickly. Uh, the first one is I, I want to challenge the notion that Congress needs a legitimate legislative purpose as a uh, condition of gathering information. Uh, second, I would argue that even if the legitimate legislative purpose uh, test applies generally to Congress's trying to get information from the executive branch, it ought not to apply to this particular type of information, which is the tax return information. And then finally, even if the legitimate legislative purpose a test applies, it, it does not apply, in my judgment, in the way that um, the Office of Legal Counsel, for example, as Andy suggested, um, has applied in this case, where they're looking actually at the motivations of the committee rather than actually at what the purpose is. 
I think maybe Kate and Elizabeth will address that third point in more detail, so I will uh, focus on the, on the first two. So the first point then is, does Congress actually need a legitimate legislative purpose whenever it seeks to gather information? That seems plausible on its face. It sounds right. Um, and, and I think it is right in the sense that any public body or official should be using their office for proper purposes. You should not be gathering information, say, to get dirt on a political rival or to uh, for personal uh, financial gain. Um, but, but that's true not just of Congress, that's true of executive branch officials as well. I, I don't believe that turns from being a general principle of good government and in some cases uh, ethical or criminal laws uh, into a constitutional prim uh, principle that limits the ability to seek information. It doesn't mean, for example, that the IRS gets to be a gatekeeper when Congress asks for information any more than it would be for if the president asked for information. The president could ask the IRS for tax returns uh, for improper purposes, but that doesn't make the IRS the judge of his motivations or his, uh, his reasons. Now, Congress gathers information in many different ways. Uh, people voluntarily provided information. Uh, they, members of Congress hear from their constituents. They go to town halls. They have hearings where witnesses come and voluntarily testify. They have staff that provides uh, research. They have an entire, entire agencies, such as the Congressional Research Service, which are dedicated to doing nothing but developing information for Congress. I'm not sure that I really, I'm not sure that there's a theory that, the, that Congress needs a legitimate legislative purpose before it gets any piece of information in those ways. Um, but uh, I don't know how it would be practical if there was such a, um, a, a principle. Congress also gets information, a lot of information, from the executive branch. Uh, congress, individual congressional offices request information on a daily basis, um, often having nothing to do with legislation in particular. For example, if a constituent has a problem, they will request information uh, on their behalf. Um, they and then committees routinely uh, request information from the agencies that they oversee uh, that process is, might be considered a legitimate, you know, it might be considered just a legitimate legislative pro uh, purpose in the very general sense that committees want to understand as much as they can about the agencies that they oversee, what problems they have, how they operate, how they're organized, um, if there are any, you know, fraud, waste, or abuse, but not just limited to that, whether the laws that they operate are uh, working correctly and so forth. But this process works without any specific connection with a, in, in most cases, I would say, without any specific connection to any legislative purpose um, in particular. Uh, indeed, uh, and the, there's a famous statement from Woodrow Wilson uh, about the importance of the legislative branch looking as widely as possible into the operations of the uh, of the executive, 
He says it's the proper duty of a representative body to look diligently into every affair of government and to talk much about what it sees. It's meant to be the eyes and the voice and to embody the wisdom and will of its constituents. Unless Congress have and use every means of acquainting itself with the acts and the disposition of the administrative agents of the government, the country must be helpless to learn how it is being served. And unless Congress both scrutinizes these things and sift them by every form of discussion, the country must remain in embarrassing, crippling ignorance of the very affairs which it is most important that it should understand and direct. Now, that is, that is I think, a pretty good summary of the way Congress understands its general authority and duty to get information from the executive branch. Now, when you're talking about going into the private affairs of individuals, that is a, that is a different matter. But in general, the idea that there needs to be a specific legislative purpose um, for looking into, uh, into the executive branch agencies, I think is simply out of step with um, historical understandings and practice. And this is something that is not just the view of the executive, of the legislative branch, it is also the view of the executive. The policy of the executive branch with respect to congressional requests for information is set forth in a 1982 document called the Reagan Memorandum, which is still in, in effect. Uh, and it says, congressional requests for information shall be complied with as promptly and as fully as possible unless it is determined that compliance raises a substantial question of executive privilege. And there, here there's no mention of the, the executive branch deciding whether the legislative branch has a need for it or what its purpose is or whether it's a pretext. It is Congress's job to make those judgments. The executive branch's job is simply to protect its own constitutional prerogatives. And uh, as we'll get to in a, in a minute, um, there is no issue here of any executive privilege or even a question of executive privilege uh, in the information that has been requested by the Ways and Means Committee. Now, the last type of uh, way that I want to discuss in which Congress gets information is the uh, is the, is the way that 6103F works, which is a, a legislation to require the reporting of information by the executive branch. Now, 6103F is by no means unique. Congress has imposed thousands of reporting requirements on executive branch agencies. In fact, every Congress, uh, the clerk of the House puts out a report, which is like 500 pages long, listing all of the requirements that uh, Congress has imposed by law on executive branch agencies to report information. Some of these are uh, reports that take place on a periodic basis, once a year. Uh, some, some occur uh, when a specified example, uh, event happens, then the agency in question is required to report that, either to Congress as a whole or to a particular committee or series of committees. And these are not uh, these are not trivial reports. Um, in many cases, there are sometimes the these uh, legal requirements involve extraordinarily sensitive information, such as, for example, the requirement that the president must fully must keep intelligence committees fully and currently informed of all intelligence committee uh, intelligence activities, including covert action. 
right? So when there, the uh, intelligence community engages in a covert action, there's a specific reporting requirement with some, with some exceptions, but uh, that requires it to report that to the intelligence committees. This is not because there is a specific legislative purpose involved in knowing about the uh, killing of bin Laden, right? I mean, the, the, the intent is that the uh, committees must know what the, the important things that the uh, intelligence agencies are doing in order to be able to do their job. Again, I don't know how a, the, a, a legitimate legislative purpose um, test would work in these kinds of situations where either there's an ongoing reporting requirement or a, a reporting requirement when something specific happens. Uh, another example of a reporting requirement or a reporting authorization would be whistleblower laws, right? Where uh, agency employees are empowered, not required, but empowered to provide certain information to Congress and in fact, Andy um, gives an example in his article about one of one such one of many such laws, which is the IRS whistleblower law, um, which would allow uh, a whistleblower to disclose to Congress when there's uh, any possible misconduct, maladministration, or taxpayer abuse. Uh, he points out that this would mean that a IRS employee would uh, be able to, if there's something going funny going on with the president's tax returns, an IRS employee would be able to, um, to report that to the tax committees. But I'm not sure how the, the, the IRS employee is supposed to make a judgment about the uh, legitimate legislative purpose um, in that situation. Does it, it, and, and that's true of all these whistleblower laws and all these reporting laws. Is the, is the purpose uh, considered at the point when the statute is enacted? Is it the nature of the particular information that has to be reported? Is it an assessment of whether Congress actually needs the information at that particular time? Um, I, I think there, there, there's, no, it would be, there's no practical way of, of executive branch officials making those judgments. There's no history of them trying to make those judgments or asserting that they're required to make them prior to the uh, OLC opinion here um, that authorizes the withholding of the president's tax returns. And I would note that it's a particularly uh, troublesome problem, I think, when you're talking about materials that, um, uh, like the tax returns, where it would be actually a crime to report or disclose the information if it was not authorized by law and now you have to make a subjective judgment about whether or not it is, it is, uh, uh, it is, it is allowed in this particular situation. All right, so I'm gonna just close, because I, I know uh, we're, I'm getting short of time, um, with uh, two points. One is, uh, in, in, in the whole history of congressional requests to uh, the executive branch and all of the uh, historical disputes, there is not, as far as I know, a single example of information being withheld on the basis of the lack of legitimate legislative privilege. Now, there are lots of disputes where um, agencies claim or the executive branch claims that there's an executive prerogative involved. Uh, and in those cases, 
the question of whether Congress really needs the information or whether it could use different information and so forth, that goes into the negotiation and accommodation process. But under, I'm not aware of any example of information being withheld simply on the grounds that the executive branch thought there was no legitimate legislative need. And finally, uh, with respect to the information that we're talking about here, which is tax return information, that is clearly not privileged information. And we know that because, number one, the, this, this is information that does not, is not created by the executive branch. It exists solely because Congress has required that this information be um, uh, produced and submitted to the government. Uh, as the Office of Legal Counsel admits, there's nothing wrong, there would be nothing wrong if Congress wanted to make all tax information public, which it has in the past. Um, there's no constitutional problem there, which is certainly not a position it would take with regard to anything that it thought was executive privileged. Um, and so it's hard to understand, even if the legitimate legislative purpose test applies generally, how it can apply given Congress's control over this particular type of information. And I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you, Mike. Our third speaker is Kate Shaw. She is professor of law at Cardozo Law School, where she also co-directs the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy. She writes on executive power, the law of democracy, reproductive rights, and justice. Before coming to Cardozo, she worked uh, in the White House Counsel's Office in President Obama's administration. And before that, she clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens and Judge Richard Posner. Great. Okay, so thank you so much, Adam, for organizing, and to all of you for sticking around. Y'all are the true believers. Um, uh, okay, so... Um, so both Andy's paper and um, the OLC opinion that both Andy and Mike have mentioned conclude that Congress requires and that Congress lacks a legitimate legislative purpose for requesting the president's tax returns and thus that the request um, need not be complied with. Um, we should note that the facts on the ground have changed somewhat since Andy drafted his paper. Right, The paper concedes that this kind of inquiry into a legitimate legislative purpose might look quite different if impeachment were in the mix. Um, and so I'll maybe talk a little bit about impeachment. And um, you know, this is a tough area to write in right now. You know, like you have to constantly revise your papers. And so I think Andy, I presume, will revise and maybe have to take a position um, on what the right answer should be given recent developments. Um, but um, but I do think there's value actually in just kind of talking in more general terms um, about sort of this kind of inquiry into a legitimate legislative purpose. So I'm going to bracket. Um, Michael's view that no legitimate legislative purpose is required, that this statute of its own force gives Congress or this committee an entitlement to uh, these returns. I actually think Michael makes a compelling case, but it does feel to me as though as a constitutional matter, um, some sort of legislative, legitimate legislative purpose ought to be required for everything Congress does, and not in this kind of loose norm or practice way, but maybe as something judicially enforceable. Um, and it is also true that the White House hasn't made claims of this sort previously. Um, as Mike alluded to, when the White House or the executive branch in general want to resist congressional requests for information, uh, they typically do that framed in some sort of variant on executive privilege, right? The presidential communications privilege, if we're talking about confidential conversations between the president and his advisors, um, some sort of privilege to um, protect sensitive diplomatic uh, conversations, uh, matters of defense, even if unclassified. Um, so none of that is applicable here, right? Um, nothing being sought 
really involves the discharge of the office, necessarily at least, involves the discharge of the office of the presidency at all. And I would say this is another area in which the president's failure to separate himself from his private affairs during the period of his presidency raises challenges not just for ethics or governance, but also sort of how existing legal doctrine ought to apply. Um, but it is true that unable to offer any kind of affirmative privilege-based argument against uh, providing these documents, the president's lawyers uh, and the Office of Legal Counsel have shifted the burden to Congress, essentially requiring it to justify its need for this information. Um, but it doesn't seem wrong to me, even if it hasn't been articulated in quite these terms, that Congress should have some legitimate reason for doing what it does. Um, but I also think that if, if this is true, the test for ascertaining what a legitimate legislative purpose is should be an exceedingly forgiving one, um, which I think is quite different from the position taken either by Andy or by the OLC memo. Um, so, okay, if we accept that some sort of legitimate legislative purpose is required, there are a host of subsidiary questions, right? So substantively, what kinds of purposes might be deemed improper? Um, how does sort of impeachment or the posture in which Congress is making its request um, affect the kind of showing that it needs to make? Um, and then there are these kind of procedural and evidentiary issues, right? How can various sorts of purposes be imputed to Congress? Um, is it the case, as OLC suggests, that whether the committees, um, that the Treasury itself must determine, right, the executive branch, whatever the sort of recipient of the request is, must make a determination for itself um, of, in the, to quote OLC, whether the committee's stated reason reflects its true one or is merely a pretext. Um, and if OLC, if the Treasury in this case has to make that determination, does the OLC review that determination or make its own determination? How does it review the determination? If, if in fact, o OLC slips, I think, between crediting Treasury's determination as reasonable and making its own determination that this was a pretextual um, request. Um, and what weight, if any, should courts accord to the Treasury and OLC determination, um, as in this case, that there was no legitimate legislative purpose here? Um, OK, so on the substance, um, I think that Congress could well have a legitimate legislative purpose for seeking the present tax returns here. Um, you know, the general um, justification offered by uh, Chairman Neal and his request is that it is necessary for the committee to determine, uh, sorry, um, that the committee is considering legislative proposals on conducting oversight related to our federal tax laws, including but not limited to the extent to which the IRS audits and enforces the federal tax laws against a president. Totally legitimate legislative activity, and the tax returns seem quite obviously germane to that kind of activity. Um, that's not really disputed in the OLC opinion, right? What's disputed is whether that is really what is driving the committee in making its request. And in support of its position that, in fact, this is pretextual and not the real reason that the committee is making this request, OLC mostly relies on press statements made by Chairman Neal, Nancy Pelosi, and others in the Democratic minority before the 2018 midterm elections and then just around and after the elections, right? Um, so floor statements by then uh, ranking member Neal in which um, Neil suggests that he wants the president's tax returns to be made public. Um, news article describing congressional Democrats' hopes upon taking control of the House to demand the president's tax returns or turn the spotlight on the president's tax returns. Um, and there are like three pages of this, CNN appearances, MSNBC appearances, um, Washington Post articles, New York Times articles. That is sort of the universe of evidence that OLC relies upon. Um, and some of the statements that are quoted, um, well, I would say some, some of them just suggest the committee will pursue the president's taxes. Some suggest the committee will make public the president's taxes. Um, and some 
describe the, the committee, and Neil says this a few times, you know, we're going to be very careful. We want to make sure that what we do is legally sound or legally defensible. And that is all quoted in this um, as if it is some smoking gun piece of evidence that suggests not just kind of due care in pursuing something, um, but something kind of nefarious or potentially pretextual. Um, so um, the OLC opinion kind of concludes this very lengthy recitation of all of these press statements. Um, by saying, to sum up, throughout 2017 and 2018, Chairman Neal and other members of Congress made clear their intent to, to acquire uh, and release the president's taxes, um, uh, you know, and sort of list some of the things that they're hoping that this tax return, that these taxes will reveal. Um, OLC says, but oversight of the extent to which the IRS audits and enforces the federal tax laws against a president had never been the focus of their demands. Um, so, you know, there, there is the suggestion that the desire to make public is a problem because it's not really explicitly in the letter. Um, but of course, OLC doesn't identify any legal obstacle to making these returns public. It's of course, a pro there's a prohibition in the federal law to making tax returns public subject to a number of exceptions, right? One of which is the sub-provision that Chairman Neal is relying upon here. So it's not as though it couldn't make these returns public, couldn't lawfully do so. Um, it's that it's not been direct or honest, right, about, about sort of what is um, driving it. So let me read one more sentence from the OLC opinion. The committee's request, um, uh, the stated purpose blinks reality. It is pretextual. No one could reasonably believe the committee seeks these tax returns because of a newly discovered interest in legislating. Um, the committee's request reflects the next essay in a longstanding political battle over the president's tax returns. Um, okay, so I've written a lot about presidential statements and sort of when it's appropriate for courts to consider those statements when they're evaluating the meaning or the lawfulness of the president's um, action. And this comes up a lot, right, because this president gives litigants a lot to work with. So these, these kind of questions, these, these statements are offered to courts, right, tweets and other kinds of statements um, all the time. Um, and I actually argue that it is mostly, I think as a default matter, improper for courts to rely upon these out-of-context statements in order to assess sort of meaning or lawfulness of presidential conduct. I think it's convenient for litigants to, to grab the stuff, um, but I think it's often inappropriate for courts to rely upon it, subject to a bunch of, I think, pretty significant exceptions. And I haven't thought as long or hard about the use of congressional statements, um, by, statements by members of Congress that are used in the way that OLC uses them here. Um, but I think it has to be improper to rely on the statements in the way that OLC did here um, for a number of reasons. Um, so one, there is this, um, let me just yell on time, take a couple more minutes. Um, so the fact that OLC doesn't identify any legal problem with what it is doing, um, the, the fact that there, you know, there clearly is some obvious nexus between the articulated legislative goal and these documents um, uh, being sought. Um, but I actually think that, that what is um, most kind of um, troubling about the way that OLC uses these statements here actually kind of echoes back to the panel this morning about um, uh, partisan gerrymandering that Victorus and others uh, were on, which is that I think what the opinion ultimately comes down to is an assertion that what the committee is trying to do is political and that it is impermissible for it to be doing something that is political. And I mean, I just think about that for a minute. This is Congress. Like, of course it is doing something that is political. To me, I guess the, pro the question is, if it were a purely partisan undertaking, I think that might raise genuine problems if you could figure out a way to sort of ascertain whether that was the case. Um, but I think that, you know, for what it's worth, to, to call back gerrymandering for a second, um, 
The majority in the recent gerrymandering case, right, says that one of the reasons it can't possibly make the judgment about how much politics is too much in the drawing of legislative districts is that it is a given that politics will play some role in this, this sort of legislative undertaking of drawing legislative districts. And I think the majority actually gets it wrong in that case. But the court disagreed with me. And I would think you have to kind of take the bitter with the sweet. So if politics is inevitably going to be a component of what a legislative body is doing, so long as there is also some legitimate justification, I think that has to be enough. Um, and I have like many more thoughts, but I think that I'll, I'll leave it there. Maybe we can do more in the Q&A. So thank you. Great. Thank you, Kate. Our last panelist today is Elizabeth Weidrup. She is the president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. And before becoming its president, she served for eight years as its chief counsel. Uh, throughout her time at the CAC, she's filed more than 200 briefs in a variety of, of uh, cases involving constitutional and other legal issues. Uh, she's filed more than 50 briefs on behalf of Congress, including uh, filing a lawsuit on behalf of 200 members of Congress in Blumenthal versus Trump, which is one of the cases involving the Emoluments Clause. Before coming to the CAC, she practiced law at Quinn Emanuel and elsewhere, and was a law clerk to Judge James Browning of the Ninth Circuit. Elizabeth? Thank you so much, and thank you to all of you for being here this afternoon. Um, I'm uh, delighted to be here to talk about this topic. It's, uh, you know, fortunately there haven't been any breaking news, at least I checked my phone just like five minutes ago, so I think we're still at least in the, the contours of this panel up to date. Um, so I am a litigator, uh, as Adam mentioned, so I guess when I think about these issues, you know, perhaps as... Um, uh, distinct from my esteemed colleagues here from academia, you know, I think about winning. And so if I can win easily, as opposed to winning the hard way, I'm happy to win easily. And also recognizing that uh, I'm what stands between you and that beautiful reception out there, I'm going to go the easy way. So I will assume that Andy is entirely right and that uh, there needs to be a legislative purpose in order for Congress to get information pursuant to its power to investigate. Um, I think that Mike makes a very good argument for why that perhaps should not be so limiting, um, but I will go again with the easy way. And there are two points that frame my argument here, and the reason why I think it's an easy one to say that Chairman Neal should clearly get president's tax returns. Those two main points are, one, the power to investigate, if it's equivalent with legislative purpose, is extraordinarily broad. The courts have construed legislative purpose to be extremely broad. The second point is that in assessing what is legislative purpose, the courts have been extremely deferential. So I think that Chairman Neal is likely to succeed on those two points and can easily fit his request into legislative purpose. So I think that it's important to frame this with the words of the Supreme Court, just because I feel like it's really clear. So the Supreme Court in Watkins said, the power of the Congress to conduct investigations is inherent in the legislative process. That power is broad. Oh, look, they said it. Okay. It encompasses inquiries concerning the administration of existing laws as well as proposed or possibly needed statutes. It includes surveys of defects in our social, economic, or political system, 
for the purpose of enabling the Congress to remedy them. It comprehends probes into departments of the federal government to expose corruption, inefficiency, or waste. That was in Watkins. Now, I think a lot of us would see that in pretty much every sentence of that quote from the Supreme Court, Donald Trump is present. <laughs> corruption, inefficiency, or waste. The idea that there could be some possibly needed statutes to deal with some of the behaviors that we've seen over the last couple of years. But even if you disagree with me, the point is that the legislative purpose that the Supreme Court has accepted is very broad. And the types of investigations that the court has upheld make clear that it's very broad. They've upheld a, a legislative purpose for an investigation that relates to the administration of the Department of Justice. That's not a super specific legislative purpose. Or, for example, respecting naval oil reserves, respecting other public land. That's very broad. Or when it came to the idea that Congress would want to preserve information uh, during the Nixon era, the Supreme Court, excuse me, the courts upheld Congress's legislative purpose in terms of needing to understand how political processes operated during events leading up to Nixon's resignation. So all of that is incredibly broad. The idea that you can't have Trump's tax returns fit into that broad of an idea of legislative purpose, um, I think OLC is and uh, the administration's lawyers are doing the best job they can, but that is a very tough argument to make. And the nexus to actual legislation, as some of those descriptions of legislative purpose probably show, is not very tight. It's actually quite loose. So as the court said, you don't need to have any particular proposed legislation, even though Chairman Neal does say, you know, particularly with respect to the whistleblower complaint um, that he hasn't made public yet, but the idea that there could be new uh, safeguards needed to be put in the process for auditing presidential and vice presidential tax returns. That's actually really specific because the court has been very um, uh, loose in terms of requiring any sort of nexus. They said, in Eastland, the very nature of the investigative function, like any research, is that it takes the searchers up some blind alleys and into non-productive enterprises. To be a valid legislative inquiry, there need be no predictable end result. Congress's investigatory power is as penetrating and far-reaching as the potential power to enact and appropriate under the Constitution. So legislative purpose, and thus the power to investigate, is extremely broad. And the way that the courts look at legislative purpose, it has been judicially enforceable to some extent but in an extraordinarily deferential manner. So the courts have said that they must uphold a congressional request for records so long as it is not plainly incompetent or irrelevant to any lawful purpose of Congress in the discharge of its duty. That's a really tough standard, plainly irrelevant. I think it would be very hard to make the argument that Trump's tax returns are plainly irrelevant to any lawful purpose of Congress, even putting aside the impeachment inquiry that we're now um, 
uh, apparently engaged in over on the Hill. Um, irrelevant to any lawful purpose. I think, you know, we could probably think of a lot of legislative proposals or lawful purposes of Congress that are relevant to Trump's tax returns. I think the one noted by Chairman Neal is um, particularly obvious when you have a whistleblower coming to the committee saying that there has been some manipulation of the IRS in the process for auditing presidential tax returns and the idea that Congress might want to change in some way through remedial legislation or additional uh, codification of requirements related to that auditing process. So I think it's very hard to see a court, and we've seen the two district courts, at least with respect to the financial documents requested um, from Mazars and from Deutsche Bank, be deferential to Congress's stated legislative purpose and have upheld their request for documents in that case. So I think that it's very likely that we'll see the same thing happen in the litigation involving Chairman Neal and the tax returns. Um, but I think it's interesting to think about. The history here is interesting. And so I'm delighted to continue the conversation um, as Andy valiantly uh, is the lonely voice in the wilderness on this panel. Um, so uh, thank you to Andy for inviting me to comment. And thank you to you, Adam, for inviting me to be here. Thanks, Elizabeth. Well, Andy, um, do you have any, you, there's been a lot to grapple with. Do you have any, any reactions yeah, well, to anything so far? I definitely want to hear from the audience mostly, but I'll just quickly kind of hammer down this idea of whether um, a legitimate legislative purpose is required. And I guess by way of background, I got interested in this topic six years ago. I wrote an article on a report and weight provision in the tax code under which before the IRS issues a refund, a large refund, it has to go to Congress and provide information to Congress about that refund. And in that paper, I said, well, this is violate separation of powers uh, principles. Congress needs a legitimate legislative purpose. There's none here. Nobody got mad at me when I said it then. Uh, they get mad at me now when I say that the, the standard uh, exists, just, you know, the parties have switched. In any event, that was a context in which I got very interested in congressional access to information. That article is called the Congressional Revenue Service, you know, as opposed to the IRS. Uh, and I want to push back against this idea that there's no history of the executive branch inquiring this way. I mean, the statute exists because the president wouldn't turn over tax returns. That's why it's there. Uh, the case law in this area, I mean, there's not much because, at least directly, because until about 1972 or so, it was inconceivable that Congress would sue the president or a president would sue Congress. So there's not cases dealing with this. Uh, but if you look at the history of prosecutions, if you're held in contempt of Congress, there's a, a referral to the U.S. attorney, and how do you fight the potential prosecution? There's this black letter law that among the elements, among the ways out is showing that the subpoena did not have a legitimate legislative purpose. Uh, and more broadly, this purpose requirement relates to separation of powers. It is entirely possible for Congress to violate the separation of powers through informational requests. In the early 1990s, or maybe it's late 80s, Congress passed a statute saying that the, the, air, the airport organization here, MWAA, couldn't you know, shift flights from Dulles to National without telling it first. It wanted like a 30-day wait period or 60-day wait period, and then Congress might pass legislation. DC Circuit said this is unconstitutional. There's no legislative veto here. That's true. It's not INSV Chada. But by sticking your hands into an executive body uh, and requesting information, you are inserting yourself into 
uh, an executive function. And so I think this legitimate purpose is really, I mean, now it's a buzzword, but it gets to what is Congress's role in our government. Uh, as to whether it's satisfied with respect to Trump, I saw like the last filing and there was 500 pages of exhibits and I'm like, I'm not an expert on the facts anymore. I was an expert before that filing. I'm not gonna go through all these emails back and forth. I do think though that uh, putting aside whether it's satisfied, I'm not aware of any serious person who thinks that the reason they made this request is because they're interested in how the IRS audits presidents generally. Now, it could be the case that it's, that's irrelevant because we typically don't you know, try to psychoanalyze legislators, uh, but just as no serious person that I'm aware of thinks that Trump signed the travel ban because he was truly interested in you know, these issues with respect to these 10 countries, right? It's obviously a pretext. Now, pretexts occur all the time in the law and the legislature and the executive branch, so maybe it doesn't count. Um, but I don't think we should, you know, at least if we want to get into the, the political sewer, I think with the last line of the OLC memo, I think it's a fair point politically uh, whether a court should or will take into account those legislator statements. I'm not sure. Uh, if I just looked at the prior case, I would say probably not. But then we just, we're just in a weird context. I mean, the, the factors relied on in the census case. The Supreme Court said, well, we shouldn't look at this materials, but it's in the record, so we're going to decide anyway. Uh, these types of clashes at this level tends to, I think, lead to reasoning that may be a little bit different from what we might see by you know, just following you know, the prior 800 pages of opinions. Um, and, and I guess I'll close with one hypo. If uh, under the statute, it, all it takes is the chairman or chairwoman of the various committees to request anyone's tax returns. What if Steve King, God forbid, is the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee? Would you be okay if he said, I want the returns of all black civil rights leaders? Would the analysis be, well, Congress can get anyone's or through this uh, chairman, anyone's returns? I don't think so. Uh, in the 70s, this power was used to get the returns of the Black Panthers uh, for students who were against Vietnam um, and various other campus groups. I think that raises concerns. It's, this isn't just about Donald Trump. It's about everyone's um, protection from uh, this type of potential interference. You know, I just, have, I just have two questions, and actually one builds on that last point. In thinking about the panel and thinking about the, the title of your paper, it's the president's tax returns. Well, how much of this is about the president? If, if, could this just be a paper about tax returns, right? Congress and tax returns. Does the inclusion of the president in this particular, you know, the current context, you know, does that cut one way or the other, or does it have no effect? You know, I think at one point in the discussion we heard um, that the fact, well, I mean, in, in one way, the fact that it's the president sort of lends itself to the, the legitimacy of the, the Congress's oversight interest because it's the president, and in many ways they oversee the president. Uh, but at the same time, there's all, you know aspects of separation of powers and executive privilege, which might cut the other way. And so I guess my first question is, does any of this conversation we've had so far hinge on the fact that it's the president? And if, if you know, which way does it cut? Mike, you were going to jump in, so I'll let you make your point too. So um, yeah, I just wanted to respond to what Andy said specifically on the issue of um, the, uh, the what you call the stop and wait, the refund uh, reporting requirement. I think there's an important distinction when Congress uses a reporting requirement to stop the executive branch from doing something that that it would otherwise be allowed to do, um, which does get into the Chata type of issues. And of course, 
I understand it, the provision in question, the J, which requires the IRS to report certain large refunds to the Joint Committee on Taxation, it is in the law, it is in force, it's not, hasn't been struck down yet. But I think Andy's argument for that particular provision is quite different than saying that a pure information reporting requirement is unconstitutional because we think that there's not a legitimate legislative purpose. Those are two different animals. And I agree with him totally about the policy implications of having the committees start to use their power in a way of getting information about their political opponents. That, that is a very serious thing. And, and the Senate Finance Committee, which has the exact same power, could start requesting this information about uh, you know, any Democratic politicians they don't like, and, and it could be a terrible thing. But it's not, that doesn't make it a constitutional issue. It may be a reason for changing the law in the legislative history in the 1920s about this law, and again in the 1970s, there were a lot of people who raised questions about, is this a good idea? Do we trust the committees with this, this kind of information? But nobody said it was unconstitutional to give them that access. And this principle would apply not just to the tax information, it would apply to every other area in which Congress gathers information. So that's my primary concern about it. Can I respond a little bit to the kind of presidential exceptionalism or sort of how the Yeah, that's, that's yeah. one way I was thinking about yeah, it was yeah, presidential yeah. exceptionalism. I mean, look, Congress knows how to exempt the president from statutes having to do with things like ethics and disclosure. Either it does it explicitly or it has been found by courts or OLC to have implicitly excluded the president from all kinds of requirements and then Congress hasn't responded. So we have a system in which there's, there are lots of carve-outs for the president. This is very much not one of those, at least on its face, right? So the question is, do we want to read some kind of, not, I don't think anyone's arguing for a categorical exemption. I think that would be almost impossible to argue from, from the text. Um, but right, how does Article 2 impact this analysis, if at all? So on the one hand, I think you do want to be careful um, giving Congress to sort of ready access to the president. On the other hand, it's almost the description that Andy was giving about, you know, so obviously targeting on the basis of viewpoint or race um, particular individuals for, you know, request and then release of, of, the, of their tax returns um, would raise constitutional problems, right? Equal protection problems uh, specifically. I, I'm just, I, I'm not sure what the source of some kind of additional. In some ways, this is about sort of how these requests should get scrutinized. Like, what is the doctrinal formulation? In some ways, Andy talked a little bit in the paper about, and the OLC opinion does too, about fit, right? There's the, there's the kind of stated purpose, and then there's the fact that, well, there's not a great fit because they haven't done other things that would also be available to them in order to achieve this purpose of thinking about how presidents get audited. They haven't tried to talk to treasury officials. They haven't done all these other things. And in some ways, that's like a you know, heightened scrutiny kind of analysis, right? Here's the purpose, and is there a fit between the purpose and the request? And I just don't see what the basis for scrutinizing in quite such an elevated way this, these kinds of requests would be absent the kind of targeting that Andy highlights um, in the specific case of the president. I don't totally know, but I just, I, I, it doesn't feel to me as though the arguments for doing that are particularly strong. You know, the, the presidential exceptionalism was one thing I was thinking about. This, my second question is, is exceptionalism for the other part of the title of this paper, president's tax returns. What if this was... Um, just the president's information. And a couple of things I was thinking about was, what if Congress had a statute that said any information that the president had ever submitted to the government regarding his medical information, you know, Medicare 
President Trump's probably not on Medicaid, but Medicare, Medicaid, any information he ever submitted um, pursuant to reporting requirements under any health laws. If the government had any, any in its possession any information about his health, could Congress write a statute like this instead of tax returns, it's this? And could they write such a statute for anybody who submitted health information to the government? Another one I sort of thought of was, and it's a much smaller scale, but you know, books I've checked out at the Library of Congress. Right? Could Congress pass a statute saying if the president's ever checked out a book from the Library of Congress, members of Congress can find out. If I've ever checked out a book from the Library of Congress, Congress can find out. How much of this discussion is wrapped up in tax returns and how much of it is just the government has a general right, or sorry, Congress has a general right to any information that I've ever submitted to the government? I would emphasize one thing special about tax returns. Well, we would not have an income tax if we did not protect tax returns. We've tried publicizing tax returns. They were public for a short time in the 1860s. It was very unpopular. And the journalists liked it because they would say, well, you know, people in Brooklyn aren't as stupid as you think. There's 10 people who make a lot of money. But really, uh, that was the New York Times article. Uh, and then the income tax from the Civil War waned. And then it was revived in the 1890s. And people were like, well, you're going to make this information public. We don't want that. And so for the first time in the late 1800s, it was made a felony to unlawfully disclose tax returns. Congress flirted in 1934. They passed a law saying that everyone's was going to have, I guess it was called a pink slip legislation. You'd have to make a part of your tax return public. It never got into effect. The public backlash was so strong that uh, it, was, it, it was repealed before it could even start. Uh, in the present context, uh, with respect to tax returns, I would say, think about it, this is a little bit indirect. We get leaks from the... DOJ, CIA, FBI, the IRS doesn't leak. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people, just ordinary people, not Mnuchin and so on, who know what Trump's tax liabilities are, okay? They don't leak. To audit a return of that size, you need 100 IRS auditors. State agents will have the federal returns attached to them. We know that if you leak this information, public confidence in our tax system on which we rely is compromised, okay? They won't leak. Um, and that's what, and that folds into the danger associated with this request. Uh, if you expose a president's tax returns this way, people in the tax community know uh, what this does to our belief in government and how they protect our information. And I will leave it to others with respect yeah. to medical records. Yeah, and I didn't mean, I mean, those are the first two that struck me, but I guess just in general, is this about tax returns or is this just about access to, again, congressional access to any information that we've ever submitted to the government? Well, so, of course, it's about tax returns, and of course, it's about the president, and it's about the president's tax returns. You know, the president has unique responsibilities, and the relationship of oversight that is given to Congress in the Constitution is particular when it comes to the president. It's obviously not the same as my information. The government cares far less about my information than about the president's financial entanglements because my financial entanglements don't have the possibility of influencing foreign policy. And you know we see that reflected in congressional oversight. We see that reflected in the Foreign Emoluments Clause. We see that reflected in the Domestic Emoluments Clause, which, which, which applies specifically to the president. So of course it matters that it's the president. And of course it matters that it's his tax returns, because financial information is particularly connected to the legitimate purposes of Congress when it comes to corruption, when it comes to um, conflicts of interest, when it comes to ethics disclosures. 
So, you know, I think this kind of like broader idea that it somehow implicates for everyday Americans an issue related to um, areas of information where we've had a long-standing uh, privacy interests, um, I think is uh, uh, misplaced. Yeah, and I mean, on, on the president's medical records, I think Congress would have to make out a pretty compelling case, and it's hard for me to imagine what that case would be to mandate public disclosure of the, I mean, a president's, of course, have voluntarily released medical, um, you know, examination readouts, um, but I, I have a hard time seeing what would justify it. Maybe in the context it's a question of the, the balance, right? Well, I mean, uh, you know, another debate people have had around President Trump in recent, I guess, the last couple of years was the 25th Amendment, and that mm -hmm. centers around presidential health. Yeah. Um, could Congress have a statute? It would give some sort of ongoing reporting requirements so that they'd be apprised of the president's, you know, health background for the sake of 25th Amendment. I'll, I'll flag an issue. I don't know the resolution of it, but uh, I guess by way of background, Justice Roberts a few years ago flagged the separation of powers problems that might arise if Congress passed recusal rules for the Supreme Court. That is, Congress establishes inferior courts, but it's not clear that Congress could constitutionally enact an ethics rule for the body created by the Constitution itself. Now, in litigation, uh, the personal attorneys for the president have made an analogous argument. That is, Congress does, couldn't, for example, pass a statute saying that a president must divest of all businesses he or she holds. Uh, I don't know whether that's right or not, but I think it's an important issue to think about when we're thinking about the president's tax returns. Um, I, I just don't know the answer, but it's important to, it's not, it's not any ordinary federal official. Well, I've asked more than enough questions, and as Kate said, we have a room full of true believers who are willing to talk about administrative law on a, on a beautiful <laughs> right. Friday afternoon. Uh, so put your hand up, and a microphone will find you. We'll start here in front with Dan, and, and then uh, second with Elaine in the back. We'll start here. Thank you. Uh, this very uh, exciting panel, and it, this is a hypothetical that occurs to me, which is, I think, hopefully, somewhat relevant. I'm comparing the the talk we heard about the census case and this talk. So here's my hypothetical. Uh, both of those cases are heard on Monday at the Supreme Court, and at 10 a.m., the Solicitor General is saying, "You can't psychoanalyze." the uh, Secretary of Commerce's motivation because it's too complicated, it's unknowable, and it's just not practical. And then at 10 at 11 a.m., uh, the same Solicitor General is supposed to argue that, wait a minute, Chairman Deal, his real motivation is such and such. Is there, is there a duty of consistency? And those are two different questions, and there are lots of differences in the factual basis. But is there a duty of the Solicitor General to be consistent, can he uh, ethically or legitimately argue, don't psychoanalyze the reasons, because this is, it's clearly the law, at 10 a.m. and then the reverse at 11 a.m. because he's arguing for uh, uh, not to, psych to psychoanalyze Chairman Deal's uh, thinking. Yeah, and just, I mean, even a little broader than that, obviously the APA review context is different than talking about yeah, what Congress does, totally. but the point stands, right, that there is this sort of, you know, similarity or echo of the sorts of arguments that are made, you know, in this context versus commerce. Anybody have any thoughts on that, Andy, or anybody else? Yeah, I, I, for me, it's the source of law is different. You know, I'm personally someone who's against using legislative history in connection with interpreting statutes, but 
in the APA context, it may be perfectly appropriate to look at the regulatory history. Um, so yeah, the, the optics are, are strange. Uh, they, hopefully they would have two different uh, persons in the SG's office to uh, bring those up. But uh, that's the sources of law are different. That's a tactical thing. And suppose it was, this, hypothetically, suppose it was the same statute, but, it, but for some reason at the 10 a.m. case, they wanted one situation and the 11 a.m. case, does the, do you have a duty of being consistent in interpretation of the Congress or uh, do you have a duty if in the Fifth Circuit you got, or you have Al Capone as the defendant in one case and you really want to get him there, but a more sympathetic defendant in another case, so you argue slightly differently for the application of the same uh, provision of the tax code, does, it do, does the Solicitor General or the United States have a duty to be consistent in their representation to court? I can't go in, Dan Berinsky can't go into the Fifth Circuit and say, I'm married, and then go into the third circuit and say, well, technically I'm not married or something. But does the oh. federal government, does the federal government have a duty of consistency uh, that is not present in individuals? Michael, you were going to jump in. Yeah, the, the Office of Legal Counsel is tr tries to reconcile that problem by saying that courts cannot judge the motivations of legislators, but they can, which creates, so theoretically, I suppose that's consistent, but what that means in practice, if, if anyone bought that, it would mean that an agency could refuse to uh, turn over information to Congress on the grounds that it thinks it lacks a legitimate legislative purpose or it's pretext or whatever, and the, if Congress asks for that same information from a private individual, that person could go to jail. <laughs> Right for withhold because they can't say pretext. The courts are going to. That makes no sense. I mean, that seems like the opposite of the way things should be. So why? Why would they go to jail? One of the defenses to prosecution for ignoring a subpoena in front of Congress is showing that it lacks a legitimate purpose. Right, That's but as Elizabeth was explaining, that doesn't mean motivation. It doesn't mean it. It's very broad, and basically, it means that there's something within Congress's constitutional power that has been delegated to a committee and there's a and it's within the committee's jurisdiction and whatever information it wants uh, is is pertinent well, to that matter. But, so, an example would be let me just give an example which is the Roger Clemens prosecution which you may recall 10 15 years ago Congress was investigating steroids in baseball which is a really important issue for Congress um, and somehow they needed to ask specific sports figures whether they had used steroids in order to decide whether they wanted to make a, a, a you know, make new legislation. Um, now, from a common sense point of view, the legitimate legislative purpose there is, is pretty tenuous, but from a legal point of view, from the court's point of view, it doesn't matter. Clemens, Clemens lied, that was, or was alleged to have lied, that was enough for him to have to go in front of a jury and possibly face time in prison for refute or for falsely answering a question. Um, yeah, he challenged legitimate legislative purpose, which is a jury issue. But for as far as the courts are concerned, uh, you know, he could have been sentenced to prison um, for for you know lying to Congress or if he had refused to answer. Um, so so the test is very very you know loose, and that involves people who are, whose liberty is at stake, not just an agency that doesn't want to 
turn over information to Congress. Elaine? Thank you. Um, hope everybody's filed their tax returns. I'm just kidding. <laughs> my, my name's Elaine Middleman, attorney in private practice. Does your analysis depend on, well, let me put this way, two questions. If Trump is being audited, can Congress, even if they don't get the tax returns, verify whether his statements are accurate, that in fact he's being audited? And then secondly, if he is being audited, would that affect the availability of the tax returns? Because possibly... You know, the numbers may change or you may be under some other, pen, facing some other type of penalty and it might be incriminating in some way. So does this, do, you know, does this supposition that there's an audit affect your analysis? I would just uh, generally say that there are various safeguards that we didn't discuss in the laws with respect to presidential audits. Uh, one, he must be audited. Certainly Congress can ask for confirmation of that, of that fact. Um, I don't know if it's constitutional, but the tax code says that the president can't order anyone to audit anyone else. In fact, if you get a presidential order to audit someone and you don't go to the inspector general, it's up to five years in prison. Uh, if the president orders you to audit or not audit anyone, there's whistleblower protections and so on. Um, so I would ar argue that in these circumstances, Congress should do what it normally does. When the House Republicans were concerned about the Tea Party scandal, I don't know whether it was a scandal, but that's what we refer, refer to it as, it told the Treasury Inspector General to conduct an investigation. TIGTA, the IG, did an investigation. After it produced a report showing irregularities, the committee then said, based on these found irregularities, we want some tax return information. That's what I think Congress should do here. If they, if they are actually interested in this issue. I don't think they are because they would have gone to the IG already, but um, that, that I think is an appropriate way to address uh, the fair concerns regarding how a president complies with the law when he's in charge of it. We have time for one last question. Uh, Has Congress asked if he's under audit? Do they know? Not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. Have to be, Andy, do you know? They, they had a meeting and asked about the various mandatory audit procedures for presidents, but not as a, because they don't want to tell about any uh, protected information. So they didn't give, you know, here's the memo with respect to Trump or anything like that. Okay. I have a couple in the middle, actually. We'll start with Rick and then last question in back. Well, but we're, it's recording. So uh, right here, right here in the middle. Thank you very much. Uh, so two short questions. The, the first to Andy, if Congress were to pass a statute saying that all presidents must disclose their tax returns going 10 years back or so, um, for whatever reasons, you can decide what reasons Congress might have for that. Do you think that statute is unconstitutional? Um, and if so, why? And then for the other people on the panel, or maybe for Andy, I mean, I, I do find it bizarre that Chairman Neal gave this particular reason for wanting President Trump's tax returns. I can think of a dozen reasons um, that Congress might have asked for the returns. Uh, so I'm curious if anyone has any views about why, after having put a lot of thought into this, apparently, um, that is the reason that they came up with uh, when they asked for the returns. I'd be interested in speculation about that. Uh, one, assuming the Ethics and Government Act is constitutional, then there can't be any constitutional issue with the tax return disclosure because we already require presidents to, to disclose a ton of information. Um, there is some debate, a limited debate, about whether it's constitutional. I won't step into that. And the second point, and there's, this is a reason they, they did it through the tax committee. 
under the tax code, the tax committee can request returns and has a free authority to make them public. Other committees do not currently have that authority. So if the intelligence committee took those returns and then broadcast them, speech or debate clause would probably protect them from criminal liability. But at least as the law stands now, it's only the tax committees that can release them to the public. But, but why that, yeah, I mean, I share your sort of disappointment that it's not framed in, I think, more compelling terms. I still think it easily clears whatever bar might exist, but it doesn't strike me as like malpractice to have framed it the way that Neil did. It's think, you know, it is not, I think he wanted to make quite clear that this was not, um, you know, punitive and designed to expose and embarrass the president, but about some larger constructive um, legislative agenda that, you know, this, further. So it doesn't strike me as crazy, but I agree it could have been. And I presume as it's being litigated, you know, they have the original letter, but they, I think, can elaborate on the justification, um, assuming that we should have, we should say there's a standing question that's being litigated right now. So assuming that the committee is able to successfully establish that it has a standing to um, make these requests, then these merits issues will get litigated. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, a, it's an odd reason. Uh, and I suspect that the answer is that because that is what's most clearly in their jurisdiction. I, I, my suggestion, which I'm not saying the committee was aware that I made this suggestion, um, would, would, was that the committee should have set up procedures to look at the tax returns, determine whether there was any information in them uh, that was relevant to any of the investigations going on in the House, and at that point make a formal request to get, you know, copies of them. Now that would have raised its own set of problems, right? Because then the IRS would say, well, you don't, you know, you don't have the right to do that. Uh, that's too, but at least that would deal with, I think, the realistic issue, which is, you know, just requesting the returns for the purpose of, you know, for a pretextual reason when you really just want to make them public. Uh, that, that, I think that is the, the, the real policy concern. Um, but, that's yeah. not the way they chose to go. I don't know that it's necessarily an odd reason. I think it's certainly a narrow reason. Um, and I think it's probably that way for the reasons that, you know, my colleagues up here have said, you know, Chairman Neal has been very um, careful um, in this whole um, process, you know, e even to the consternation of some folks um, on the left who wanted him to be more aggressive. So I think giving that narrow reason um, at the start was, you know, probably his his attempt to be very circumspect and um, you know keeping the whistleblower complaint private as opposed to the intelligence whistleblower complaint which obviously has not been kept private you know I think it's just a different than approach excuse me um but you know I think as as Kate says you know we'll see when it gets to litigating the uh, merits of the case after the standing issue is dealt with you know whether they bring up those many other <laughs> reasons why this would be appropriate as well and then we have uh, time for one last question. My name is Yaya Fanusi, a former professor in public management. As I listen to you guys, I know I'm coming from a different intellectual professional thing. So what I'm going to say is I observe when you describe the power of this statute or whatever, it's so broad you said, right? And that comes to my mind during the time that the Soviet Union Stalin. That's a type of like a Stalinist type of power given to the Congress. That wide scope, dictators like that. So I just want you to think about that. Secondly, now 
you're looking at Trump, but you're forgetting that the IRS itself has an interest, is not accepting, you know, they will not state it, but because you're asking that they should show how they audit the president, that is like, I want you to think about a private sector business. That private sector will protect their business practices. And if you're telling the IRS to disclose how they did it, it will call into a question a whole lot of things which you don't want to get into. Well, yesterday, I, or um, yesterday, it's been a long day. <laughs> Earlier in the day, you talked about um, you know, the, the, the bringing into these issues, the political issues, other agencies such as the SEC and so on. And, and you know, we've been talking about the president and Congress. We really haven't talked that much about the IRS per se. There's been a little bit of it. I mean, should there be any kind of boundary about bringing the IRS into what is, I think, pretty clearly a, a, a dispute of, of politics, politics and governance, but obviously a very heated political issue in the middle of a presidential campaign? I mean, is there any, is there any danger in bringing the IRS into this and maybe at some point asking the, the head of the IRS right, to, to, to make a choice between his obligations to Congress and his obligations as part of the executive branch. Yeah, I mean, I think these there's dangerously low levels of morale at the IRS during the Tea Party controversy. My, my sister's an IRS attorney in California. She's walking her dog in the neighborhood. She meets someone, says, oh, I work at the IRS. And the person says, for lowest learner? And it's just demoralizing. Uh, she, my sister can't, if Trump is on the TV, she turns it off. She can't look at him, can't listen to him. But she finds it so insulting that the committee is implying that you know all these career officials who are trying to work so hard would somehow bend all the rules to protect Trump. I think it, it, it's hurtful to agency morale um, to put the IRS in the middle of this when really it's the president is doing his thing against them and they're doing his thing. They're doing their thing against him. Well, um, before we bring this to a close, I do want to just point out the upcoming conferences. Uh, towards the end of the month, we have a conference on what we're calling the, uh, the Administration of Immigration, various aspects of, of issues involving just the, the public administration of immigration laws. And then in November, a conference on technology, innovation, and regulation. And that's in both directions, ways in which regulation affects technological innovation and um, along the lines of our earlier panel today, ways in which uh, technological innovation can affect uh, the regulatory process. And then finally, uh, in December, a conference on bureaucracy and presidential administration. Um, all three of those conferences and the one in March uh, are all, unlike this one, we'll be discussing papers that have already been workshopped at a Gray Center uh, workshop months earlier. So I hope you'll join us. But in the meantime, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. And please join me in thanking our last panel. Thank you.